Please uh, have your Bibles open again at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Not the easiest of chapters in our Bible, uh, but we've already noticed that this letter to the Corinthians, this first letter, uh, is something of a roller coaster. Uh, we opened uh, with a bang, as it were, eyeballing the fact that there were divisions in the church at Corinth, people aligning themselves with different preachers. Uh, there were fault lines appearing in the church. Uh, now we're uh, face to face with um, a disciplinary case involving the ugly matter of incest. Uh, later we come across lawsuits between believers, the abuse of spiritual gifts, drunkenness at the Lord's Supper. So it's, it's quite a catalogue of uh, misdemeanours uh, happening at the church in Corinth. Uh, but we have to remember that uh, these are all in-house difficulties, as it were. Uh, this is a dysfunctional family. But it is a family. Uh, there are people, Paul has already said, that he loves. Uh, he holds them dear. He recognizes uh, the, the gifts that God has given to them. And uh, it obviously saddens him that there is so much that has to be corrected uh, and sorted out. Now, in any family, uh, if any one of the, the members of the family goes off the rails, if one of the children uh, goes and, and uh, begins to uh, do stuff that's bad, then action is needed. Uh, loving parents can't simply say, well, well, uh, the young uh, will get up to mischief, won't they? Uh, love always demands that uh, parents show discipline uh, to their children because bad behavior is destructive and the family itself will be torn apart unless those who are given responsibility over the children take effective action. Uh, parents who do not discipline their children, uh, the book of Proverbs tells us, hate their children. It's a mark of not loving uh, to withhold discipline. And that's the way that we need to look at this, uh, what is a case study, if you like, in church discipline. Uh, we need to keep before us the fact that Church discipline uh, is something which is a necessity of love. Uh, it's done in love for uh, the person who has a soul, uh, 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 an eternal soul, which is to be safeguarded, and also love for the church, which can be seriously affected uh, when sin is not dealt with. Now, when we look back at our own uh, ecclesiastical history in, in Scotland, uh, it's, it's widely acknowledged that uh, Scottish Presbyterianism uh, was sometimes rather harsh in administering justice, in administering discipline. And also there was a, a, a narrow focus in, on sexual sin. And as a result of that, uh, there, there has been a, a backlash in modern days uh, so that the church, uh, now far from being overzealous in discipline, uh, is very, very reluctant to engage in any kind of discipline of church 
members. And remember, it's always those within the church, those who have already made a, a confession of faith in Jesus and whose lifestyle is inconsistent with that, that come under the discipline of the church. Uh, so there's been that backlash against an excess in our own uh, Scottish Presbyterian church history. But also, I think it's fair to say that something of the, the mindset of the, the world around us has infiltrated into the wider church and has made the, the leadership in the wider church uh, reluctant to engage in biblical discipline. For example, there's the attitude of, of total acceptance uh, that we have in society for almost everything. Uh, it's usually uh, under the, the guise of tolerance. Uh, and a tolerance is very different from acceptance. Uh, you can tolerate something which you are firmly opposed to. But we have a, a view now that you have to affirm as well as tolerate all manners of behavior. And so all lifestyles are in, and woe behold anyone who calls out uh, somebody because they have behaved in what is regarded as sinful wasn't it interesting when Tim Farron was continually uh, bombarded by questions from his interrogators? They wanted to know if uh, the lifestyle that was being spoken about was sinful. These men hardly knew what sin was. If you had pushed them to define sin, they would have been struggling. But they wanted uh, to, to nail uh, Farron on this matter of, of sin. In other words, is this something that you cannot affirm? So, uh, there is this total acceptance society and this, fa this fear of condemning moral behavior of any kind. The only taboo, really, that's left in society uh, is of judging. You know, you must not be intolerant. You must not be judgmental. Uh, now, these are societal attitudes, there's acceptance of all kinds of lifestyles, confusion about what is morally right and what's morally wrong, a reluctance to, to actually uh, nail something as being wrong in itself. Uh, now, these have also affected in, in the wider church uh, the, the outlook so that uh, some biblical doctrines have been twisted, have been uh, contaminated by this worldview of acceptance. Uh, and so we've got a, a faulty understanding of God's unconditional love. Many people within the church speak uh, as though God's unconditional love means that God is quite happy uh, to leave people uh, living the kind of lifestyle they lived before. God uh, is too kind, too benevolent uh, to to actually insist that people uh, change. He unconditionally accepts you. Now, you have heard this kind of thing. And it's actually a distortion of a true doctrine, unconditional grace. Unconditional grace means that God will accept you as a, a believer without you having to change and to make yourself acceptable to him. God justifies the wicked. We can come to the cross just as we are. Because our salvation depends on God. 
doesn't depend on our contributing uh, some kind of social improvement in order to be good enough to become a Christian. We believe and we're saved. But God loves you too much to leave you where you are at that point. God is a holy God. And having redeemed someone, he insists that they change and provides the, the power for change by his Holy Spirit. So, unconditional uh, love doesn't mean that God accepts people uh, just as they are and doesn't require any change of them. Uh, God will receive us just as we are, but as soon as we are his, he wants to make us more and more like Jesus. And then the other, the other uh, teaching that's been distorted is Jesus warning against judging. Judge not that you be not judged. Uh, it's about one of the few verses that people in the street know from the Bible, uh, but also people in the church have picked up on the idea that you're never to pass any verdict on other people. And hence, that makes church discipline almost impossible, if that is the case. Now, when Jesus says, you shall not judge, uh, what he is saying is that you, you're not to, to, to come to uh, an ill-informed opinion on someone uh, whose inner motives you have no idea. You're not to make a, 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 a final assessment on someone uh, without knowing uh, the full facts, and you cannot do that. But that is very, very different from the church uh, deciding that someone's lifestyle is incompatible with Christian profession. Very different. In fact, the church is commanded to make such a verdict. The church is commanded to take action in accordance with such a verdict. So let's look at this, as I say, difficult chapter, uh, and look first of all at the danger that is to be heeded. There is a danger, Paul says, that is to be heeded. First, uh, he gives us the facts of the situation. Somebody in the congregation at Corinth uh, has a sexual relationship with his stepmother. And it's likely that the, the woman uh, is an unbeliever because it's only the, the, the man who is to be taken to task by the church. So the woman, uh, as an unbeliever, does not come under church discipline. He is the one who has made a profession of being a Christian. He is the one, therefore, who has to be disciplined. It's a relationship that the Old Testament specifically says is wrong. It's a relationship which even the pagans were horrified by. Uh, they had uh, loose relationships, but they did regard uh, marriage as something which was uh, also important for the, the stable bringing up of family. And it was well known in Corinth. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality amongst you. It's widely known. People know about this. In fact, this may have been the tip of the iceberg. It may have been the most obvious expression of a, a rot that was widespread in Corinth. And it wasn't denied by those who knew about it. Paul then tells us why this is such a serious situation. And it's serious because it's something that can spread. Uh, it's like a cancer 
cells in the body which have gone wrong and which are going to result in uh, a creeping death throughout the body unless decisive action is taken to remove the cancerous tissue. And Paul uses not the, not the imagery of cancer, but he uses the imagery of yeast, uh, yeast uh, in dough, or bread. And of course, uh, those of you that are, are, are cooks and bakers will know that the thing about yeast is it's so tiny and such an insignificant amount uh, has a large impact on the dough. It causes uh, a large quantity of, of dough to, to rise as, as the yeast ferments. You're boasting, he says, it's not good. Don't you know that a little yeast unleaven, leavens the whole batch of dough? Uh, what he says in verses uh, 6 to 8 uh, is a reference back to the festival of unleavened bread, which was one of the festivals attached to, to Passover. It's commemorating uh, the time when God had brought his children out of Egypt. And on the night when they uh, sacrificed the, the lamb, they were to eat bread made without yeast because they were in a hurry to leave Egypt. And on the eve of every Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, there is in Jewish homes a search for uh, forbidden yeast or chametz, forbidden food in the house. And uh, the head of the household goes round with a, with a spoon and a feather looking for uh, yeast in the house before the festival can be celebrated. Uh, Paul identifies this unrepented sin as a yeast, a yeast which will have serious consequences because it will spread throughout the church if the church refuses to grapple with it. Uh, and just as it doesn't take uh, much yeast to infect the whole, it doesn't take uh, many people committing a particular sin for the, the contamination to spread. Unchecked sin has the effect of spreading and spreading and spreading. It will get steadily worse. And the, the speed of spread, uh, the speed at which it gets worse, is staggering. Um, Paul is speaking here about sexual sin, so remain in that uh, area for, for a moment. Uh, it would be unheard of, uh, probably back in the 1970s, uh, for the, the idea that homosexual practice would one day be tolerated by the church, by the Church of Scotland. 2009, uh, a man was, was uh, accused of being in a homosexual relationship. And the church decided uh, to turn a blind eye to that. And very swiftly, the church moved on to adjusting its laws to permit such a lifestyle. And now it's in the process of creating legislation which will celebrate such a union. Staggering the rate at which the infection has spread. Tolerance uh, led to acceptance and has led to celebration of that which God abhors. And what Paul finds incomprehensible uh, is in line with this spread. He finds that their boasting uh, is completely out of order. Your boasting 
is not good, he says in verse 6. Now, it may be, uh, what Paul is talking about here is that they're boasting about spiritual gifts. Uh, the Corinthians were, were boasting about uh, how wise and how powerful they were. And this was going on plus at the same time. There was this immorality. That's one possibility. Or it could be they were actually boasting about this, the immorality itself. That seems to be very strange. But uh, it may be, you see, that, that they thought that they were so spiritual that things done in the body were of no consequence. They had transcended this world and this, uh, this fleshly frame that they, being so mature, uh, could smile benignly at people who thought it was a problem. We haven't got a problem here. We are super spiritual. Now, if that second uh, option is, is the case, then, then you can see how it fits in with the way that the world views uh, things like this. Uh, those who will affirm uh, sexual promiscuity, sexual freedom, experimentation, sexual perversion, look down their noses at those who have more conservative moral values. And it's almost as though there is a, a re-education program by society, by the media, by education, by government. Uh, there, there's, there's hardly a, a, a television drama that isn't uh, reworked in order to incorporate some uh, gay moral lesson. And anyone who uh, would question, uh, for example, the, a, woman, a woman's right to choose, which is abortion goes under now, or uh, LGBT lifestyles, uh, is looked down upon as though they were some kind of Neanderthal, some primitive spirit that needs to be given diversity training somewhere before they can be fit for society. So there is this puffed up, arrogant, uh, supercilious view of those who would hold to virtues of purity and faithfulness and restraint. So there is this great danger that it spreads so quickly. And that's why it sees. It's also sees, of course, because a man's soul is at stake. We are talking, uh, Paul says, about individuals. We're talking about a man who has an eternal soul. He is a soul that can never die. And he matters to God. Verse 6 speaks about the aim being that his soul is saved. Uh, in discipline, we're always thinking about the person who has done wrong. We want that person restored. This is the family of God. We want the child who has gone off the rails to be brought back, brought back into the, the, the safety, the care, the love and the affection of the family. Uh, the discipline of the church is a means to an end. It's got one of the means that God uses to uh, ensure that the saints persevere. The perseverance of the saints, or the perseverance of God with the saints. One of the, 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 the kind of teaching, five points of Calvary. But that doesn't happen in a vacuum. God's, God's elect, God's chosen people persevere because God has uh, 
provided means of grace, and one of them is the discipline of the church. And so we care for people by being serious about biblical discipline because they have souls that can never die. And someone who is a true believer who comes under church discipline will be awakened to their difficulty, their problem, and will repent and will be restored. And on the other hand, the hypocrite will be shown up because he or she will simply choose to go on in an unchristian lifestyle rather than repent. But either way, the outcome is very solemn and very serious. It's a dangerous situation. And thirdly, it's dangerous because of the impact on the church. There's an impact on a person who has a soul that can never die, but also it can have an impact on the church. The, the tolerance of sin means that the church is prevented from being what the church really is, a community of people who are being changed by the grace of God. Paul says, get rid of the old yeast, that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. Be what you really are. Paul's not saying that the church is made up of people who are perfect. My goodness, we emphasize that again and again, don't we, that the church is made up of people who have struggles, uh, people who, who fall down and have to get up again, people who regret choices that have been made. But what Paul is saying is that the church is a community of people who are serious about holiness, who do not condone sin, but are heartbroken over sin. And where someone is championing sin, living defiantly in a lifestyle that's not compatible, then it prevents the church being that community of holiness, or people who aspire to being like the Lord Jesus. But on the other hand, if discipline is followed, it allows the celebration of Christian deliverance, Christian liberty. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity. And in truth, that word celebrate, I think, is significant. Uh, there is a joy in seeing people restored. And people can only be restored if they're confronted, first of all, with their sin. But we want to share in the joy of the restored sinner. So the church is a, a community of celebration. That sin uh, is acknowledged, repented of, and the, uh, the brother or sister welcomed again back into the fold. That's what um, uh, Paul Barrett, the Bishop of North Sydney, uh, writes about this. He says, in times of tolerance, it may take courage to discipline the known offender who professes to be a brother. This holds true also for the person who articulates views which are flagrantly heretical, including those, how, uh, those who hold high office in the church. Yet not to do so is a failure to truly love that person, since he or she will merely continue in ways that will bring spiritual ruin. Equally, not to do so also fails to love and care for the welfare of the church in its witness to the love and holiness of God, whose church it is. Well, 
Paul tells us why it's serious, why it's dangerous not to do anything. What has the church to do then? That's the practical question. Well, he tells us about the action that is to be taken. Uh, Paul, of course, you would have thought, could have gone got off uh, without you know, getting his hands dirty in this because he wasn't present. But being the, the good pastor that he is, he knows what is going on. He's, he's conversant with the situation in Corinth. Uh, and he knows that there is a, a certain procedure which the Lord Jesus has laid down and that the church is now at a certain point in that procedure. <clears throat> in Matthew chapter 18, uh, Jesus speaks about how uh, we are to deal with someone who has sinned. Uh, the essence of what Jesus says is that uh, you're not to, to jump in with tackety boots at the very beginning. You're to begin uh, gently and informally before you bring the, the church in courts of the church. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens, you have won your brother over. That's the great outcome, isn't it? That uh, when someone has, has sinned, uh, that you go and very, very informally uh, confront him, admonish him, and he he admits, yes, you're right, I've, I've messed up here, I'm really sorry. Matter over, both reconciled. But if he uh, will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So it's getting more serious at this point, and uh, we need someone to affirm what has been said or not said. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. And then Jesus finishes with the promise um, that where two, I tell you that if two or three of you agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. Now we often use that uh, in the context of prayer, you know, Jesus is with us when two or three are gathered in his name, which is true. But in the first context, Jesus is speaking about discipline. And he's saying, it's not easy to do this. This is a hard thing. But nevertheless, when even two or three of you are gathered in a judicial process, I am present. And that's why Paul speaks about uh, when you're gathered with the power of the Lord Jesus. It's, uh, he, he's, he's saying, you're able to claim this promise, this promise of, of Jesus' presence and power when you're obedient in carrying out church discipline. Paul says that he is clear uh, about what they should do. Uh, they have reached the final stage. Uh, the informal process uh, has long passed. Uh, the church has uh, bottled out at this point. They've failed to grasp the nettle, and they need to do so. And uh, they need to call this meeting, 
we need to have a formal, solemn meeting of the church. And at this meeting, Paul says, you need to hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. What does that mean? What does it mean to hand this person over to Satan? Well, it means essentially that this man is to be what we call excommunicated. Uh, he's to be put out of the, the fellowship of the church. Uh, he's not to be allowed to take the Lord's Supper. Uh, he is to be regarded as an unbeliever. He is a, a proper uh, subject for evangelism. He is to repent before he can be uh, readmitted. Uh, the world uh, outside the church in the Bible is regarded as the, the, the territory of Satan. The church uh, is the territory of Jesus. Uh, in putting him over to Satan, he's being put out of the domain of the church into the domain of the world. He will be denied uh, the, the sacraments, uh, denied fellowship with the Lord's people. And notice in verse 11 that when somebody is put out, uh, excommunication also means that they are denied social fellowship with the members of the church. Uh, so to continue uh, relating socially with somebody who is under discipline is to undermine the process. Uh, because the point of discipline is to make it clear that somebody uh, is in a very serious situation. Something very dangerous has happened. Uh, the offender's tendency will always be to minimise and to make light of what he's done. And church members, Paul says, are called to show tough love by cutting off contact. But tough love is what it is. It is done with a desire that the person be restored. The hope is that the experience of being exposed to the world again will be so radically humbling that his flesh, the proud, stubborn, sinful nature that led him into this position will be destroyed. And as a humbled person, he will seek the Lord and will seek to be readmitted to the church. So discipline is intended to restore the offender. So church members uh, have cut off social contact with this person, but when they bump into him in the street, they will say uh, to him, it's really sad, isn't it, what has happened? And we are praying that you will, you will realize that you need to repent, you need to seek the Lord, because the church fellowship will be only too eager to welcome you back when you have done that. Pleading with someone who is now outside the fellowship of the church. No pretending things are normal, no vindictiveness. Aim is restoration. Thirdly, Paul speaks about the wisdom that must be applied. Uh, he's, he's spoken about not even eating with such a person. He wants to make it absolutely clear that he's not speaking. Uh, he's not telling the, the Christians that they're not to, to socialize, uh, to have dinner with or invite to dinner uh, people who have uh, 
a lifestyle that they can't condone. He's simply talking about professing Christians who have demonstrated a lifestyle that is not compatible with the Christian faith. If they were to, to stay apart from people who had a sinful lifestyle, they wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't meet up with anybody in the world. They would have to withdraw from everybody uh, who wasn't uh, in the church. It's contrary to what Jesus did and commanded. Jesus said, see, I send you out as sheep among wolves. So that is where we belong. We belong uh, with those who are not yet Christians. How will they hear unless we are making contact with them, unless we are drawing near to them? Their habits uh, may be offensive to us. That's understandable. They have not yet come to the light. We don't have to pronounce judgment on them. Paul says God will do that. God will judge them. But we are to love them and to seek to understand them. And we are to plead with them and speak to them, to encourage them uh, to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing that, that Paul wants to apply wisdom to. He's only speaking about this particular instance of a Christian uh, who is living in open an unconfessed, unrepented sin. The world needs to see that the church disapproves of this, otherwise the church's testimony is utterly blunted. But those uh, who have similar lifestyles who are not Christians, the Christian actually uh, is constrained to get alongside. That's the only way we can bring the good news to them. Uh, in coming uh, near to them. Notice also we're not to focus on sexual sin alone. Uh, there's a list of sins for which discipline uh, is called for in verse 11, and it should give us pause for thought. Along with the, the more flagrant sins is greed and slander. They can blur the distinction between the Christian and the non-Christian. When such a person's lifestyle, Paul says, whatever uh, kind of sin it is, is, is openly and unashamedly non-Christian, then it's up to the Christian community to act. Uh, they, must, uh, not re they must refuse to recognize this person as a Christian. And, and hard as it may be for them, they're to drop social contact with them in order to make it plain to those who look on. Now, when, when the church loses her vitality and the church becomes formal, we get things back to front. We keep our distance from non-Christians, right? We don't engage or relate to non-Christians, and we think that we're keeping ourselves pure when, in fact, we're failing in our mission. And we continue to, to hobnob and have good terms with people inside the church who are living lives inconsistent with their Christian profession. And that brings shame and reproach upon the church and blunts her witness. Finally, there's the cross that tests everything. Paul uh, earlier in his letter, speaks about the message of the cross. Uh, the cross casts its, its great shadow over all of the Christian life, and so it is here. 
uh, the Passover, which is at the heart of what Paul is saying, uh, talking here about yeast and leavened bread and so on, the Passover was the great shadow, uh, the great picture of the cross. At the Passover, there was a lamb slain. There was a, a death, there was a substitutionary death. The lamb died so that no one within the household would die. The blood of the lamb was powerful. The destroying angel passed over the homes on which blood uh, had been displayed on the doorposts and the lintel. Uh, at Passover, people made sure that there was no leaven in the house before they went on to kill the lamb. Paul says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slain. His death has taken place. And because of that, there's doubly no place for sin amongst his people. The cross shows up the seriousness of sin and the remedy. Think of it this way. For our sakes, for the sake of redeeming sinners, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, was excommunicated. The Father turned his face away. He went into the darkness in order to bear the punishment of sin. That is how serious God takes sin. And therefore, when we fail to, to act in accordance with the Bible's uh, guidelines, we fail to recognize the serious of sin. Because to bring us home, there was no uh, smooth talking. There was no papering over the cracks. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And because the Father turned his face away from the Son on that awful day, we may know his blessing. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That wonderful face that was turned away now is turned towards us in love and grace because of the one who was banished. Christ suffered and died to obtain for himself a bride that will be pure, clean, unspotted. And friends, church discipline is how Jesus purifies his bride. It's a solemn chapter. It's not an easy chapter for us to, to consider. But we must apply it to our lives. And there's an obvious application for anybody at all who is not yet a Christian. Sin is serious. When sin destroys, sin has eternal consequences. If sin is not dealt with, we will go to, to hell. We will be punished eternally. And therefore, if we are still in our sin, we need to, to turn away from our sin and we need to look to Jesus, the sin-bearer, the one who was excommunicated, that we might be forgiven, that we might know his smile, that we might know it is right with me and God. But yes, I have messed up. I have sinned in, from A to Z. 
I have broken the commandments. But I believe that these offences have been dealt with in the cross of Calvary. That's where we must begin. We must know that our sin is dealt with. And then as we go on, for those of us who are Christians, uh, we need to, to live in an ongoing uh, zeal for holiness. And one of, the, one of the steps that we can take is to ensure that, that we have somebody in our lives that would hold us accountable, who would admonish us if we were to, to do something which was unworthy. You have somebody that's close enough to you, uh, that's a friend, true enough to, to speak with kindness and candor. Do our prayer triplets function well enough that that would happen amongst us? That's when the, the church is operating well as family, when we're willing to, to speak uh, out in this way. Because we love one another and because we recognize that sin is serious. God has given us uh, this means of grace to hold us together as a family, to keep us pure and to preserve us for Jesus eternally. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are a holy God, awesomely holy. And we are sinful. Each one of us, Lord, has hidden depths of sin that would cause us to tremble should we fully comprehend them. Lord, we, we ask that we would more and more shrink from the very approach of temptation. More and more have things in place in our lives that would keep us from going over these lines and that we keep our consciences soft and tender so that we will be quick always to confess our sin, to name it for what it is and to seek forgiveness. Bless the gospel to us tonight, Lord. Grant our forgiveness and grace. Grant, we pray, repentance and faith. In Jesus' name we pray.